mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we begin looking at our text today, I wanted to take a moment to remember that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. God is the author and creator of all life, and life is precious in His eyes, so precious that He has made us in His image, has formed us in our mother's womb, has known us from conception all the way to death. And I am aware that everything is political, and I have no desire to be political, but what I do have a desire to do is spend time in prayer and to take a moment today in prayer to encourage us all to see life as God sees it. I have this desire because in this past year there were over 800,000 abortions in America. And so we take a moment to pray for the lives lost and to pray for those who are hurting, to pray for healing and strength. Will you please join me? Lord Jesus, forgive us. You have come that we might have life and have it abundantly. And I pray for understanding and healing. In sorrow today, Lord, we remember before you the lives of the many children that have ended. We mourn their deaths and we cry out to you for your mercy. Lord, our world is broken and we are in need of your healing. And every situation is unique, Lord, and who can understand and know what to do but you. So I pray that you would turn our hearts from fear to peace, from guilt to grace, from anger to kindness, from hardened to open, from divided to united. And when we see no other option, Lord, that you would turn our hearts and eyes to you. I pray that you would give us strength and keep us steadfast in your word of life forever. And I ask this through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is clear to me that followers of Christ are to love one another with the same self-sacrifice that which Christ loved us. All disciples of Christ are to show that Christ-like sacrificial love in the face of this darkness. So I ask that we would assist mothers in every way to relieve them of the temptation to abortion and likewise to support all fathers and mothers as they embrace their family responsibility. And I would say that as we speak the truth in love, we must not condemn nor judge. Our call is a call to repentance that begins with ourselves so that we might restore the likeness of God and become mirrors reflecting the light of Christ to a wounded, confused, and anxious people. I pray that our society sees us as disciples of Jesus, overflowing in love, kindness, and forgiveness to all, for there is always hope and forgiveness, and no sin is too great for our Lord. May our church, may our community become a beacon of his divine love and his forgiveness, where all human life is valued as deeply as our Lord Jesus values it. We confess together that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And so I pray that he would fill us with Christ's love, humility, and conviction. 
And if there is anyone who would like to discuss this with me further, I welcome a chance to speak with you. And I'll take just another moment to say that for the children that are alive and are hurting, you, our congregation, is need, are needed. As you know, our church is actively supporting kinship, which is where if a biological parent is unfit to raise the child, usually a family member, more than likely a grandparent, steps in to raise the children. And also foster families, we support both through our vulnerable children ministry. As I bring awareness to this, I tell you this because the only definition of religion is found in James where it says, do not neglect to care for the orphans and widows and to keep ourselves pure in the Lord. Our community, these families need our support. These kinship family members and foster parents have chosen not to ignore these children but to bring them into their own homes and raise them and love them but they cannot be alone in this. When church families come around these kinship or foster families and provide to them meals, support, transportation, and above all, prayer and love, we answer the call that God has given to us. 1 Corinthians calls us a body in which no part can say to the other, you are not needed or you have no place here. We cannot stand by and do nothing but we must act. Last month, we did not have enough volunteers to support a certain family. And so those children had to end up going to foster care. Every day we don't act, we miss an opportunity to love and to serve. Every day we don't speak up, darkness remains. It is time to live out our calling. The body of Christ needs each one of us. Today, it is time to stand for these children. Our text today comes to us from the book of Luke, and I would direct you to your bulletins where you can follow along with me in chapter 4. The text will appear behind me, of course, on the slides. In the Gospel of Luke, so far we have had the birth of Jesus. We have seen him visited by Magi. We have seen the young boy go to the temple. John the Baptist and his ministry is highlighted in Luke 3, as well as the genealogy of Jesus. And prior to where our reading picks up today, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and then returned after being attended to by angels to Galilee. And in the power of the Spirit, the news about him is spreading as he teaches and is doing miracles. Our text picks up where he goes home. This is verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, stood up to read and the scroll was handed to him and he found the place where it was written. He came to Nazareth where he was brought up and since this was early in the ministry of Jesus, we can assume it was not long from the time when he actually had lived and worked in Nazareth before that. Probably the people of the village knew him as a carpenter maybe a builder, maybe like in the movie he built like the first ever bar stool. I thought that was weird. But who knows? But I love this piece about as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus made it his custom to get together with God's people for worship and the word of God. If there was anyone who probably didn't need to go to church, it was Jesus, and yet he models for us this is the custom we are to have. 
text says he stood up to read. Usual order of a service in a synagogue began with some prayer, some praise, then a reading from the law, then a reading from the prophets, and then a sermon. Probably, usually, either from the teachers there or from a learned visitor. And on this occasion, we find that Jesus was the learned visitor. And since this synagogue was there, I wonder how many times he had attended it before, before he now stood and read and taught. And this is what he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I added that piece because in your Luke NIV it's not there, but in Isaiah 61 it is. And also the King James Version, which as we know was probably one of the first. Don't you think? A couple of holy nods, I'll keep going. All right. To proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed fear free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In this passage from Isaiah chapter 61, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, is the one who was speaking. Now don't miss that. That what was written 2,000 years ago is now being spoken by the same one who said it. This is what we mean when we say things like all scripture is God-breathed. And I love when it happens when the words are captured and then spoken again by Christ himself. Because it's something that I really can't wrap my mind around. That Christ, who was there from the beginning and was speaking, has now become the word made flesh and is now speaking the words again. It's a mind trip. I mean, the multiverse has nothing on this. Ah, it's exciting. I don't understand it, but I love it. The word anoint, you know, you rub, you sprinkle it on, you apply an ointment or maybe a liquid too. People in the Old Testament were often literally anointed with oil. The priests, for their special service to the Lord in Exodus 28, were anointed by oil. It was applied, but as a sign of the Holy Spirit upon their life and service. The oil on the outside was a representation for what the real spiritual work was going on inside of them. And in this prophetic text, the anointed Messiah announced that he has come to heal the damage that sin brings. And five things are specifically mentioned. First, we see that sin impoverishes us, deprives us of wholeness, makes us think we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things, makes us think that we are without value, makes us hate ourselves, drains us of joy and takes away what we have and leaves us with nothing. Sin makes us truly poor. But the Messiah brings good news to the poor. News of mercy and love. News that we are not left on our own or left to lie in a bed that we ourselves have made. But rather, good news of hope. Sin breaks hearts. Breaks hearts. Who of us has not experienced the breaking, the feeling, the effects of sin? Sin done to us or the result of sin we have done to another? But the Messiah has good news for the brokenhearted, news that he is close to you, that he will bring restoration to you. To those who have been crushed in spirit, he will restore you. 
News that you do not face this life alone. You do not face this pandemic alone. You do not face overwhelming odds alone. You do not face Goliath and stand there alone. The Lord is with us. Sin, it says, makes people captives, enslaves them. For too long, I have seen the effects of addiction. For too long, I have felt the effects of addiction. Maybe you have too. The Messiah has come to set us free. Has made us His. What does that mean to be His? That no matter what has taken you captive, He will break the chains. No matter what it is that has defined you, has made you say, this is now who I am no longer. You belong to Him. He has given His life for you, has redeemed you, has made you His friend, made you a child of God who may crawl into the Father's lap and speak and be heard. Sin blinds us. I've heard it said that you could be (laughs) wrong and swear you're right. Some people have been known to do it all their life. It's a good rhyme. But spiritual blindness goes far beyond just being wrong. Sin has a way of blinding us and making us see that there is no goodness left in this world. That there is no goodness left in us. That God is not faithful. That there are other ways to satisfy our hearts. Other ways of living and letting people live that are better, more in touch with how things are now. Sin blinds us. But the Messiah comes to heal, to open our eyes. He does not walk out on you. He does not turn a blind eye to you, but sees you, hears you. Creates new hearts and right spirits within us. He is described as light in the darkness. It says here that sin oppresses its victims, harasses us, clings to us, brings with it guilt, sickness, keeps us up at night. But the Messiah comes to bring liberty to the oppressed. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all you who are exhausted and seek peace. Come to me, all you who cry out for deliverance. The Messiah does not hide. He does not make it hard for you. But the Messiah himself takes you by the hand when the road is dark and brings you into his light to set you free, to make you whole. And if you don't see these things right now, do not let go of this promise because he is the Messiah who finishes what he starts He is the sower who plants the seed and then as the ground rests and patiently waits, little by little, the plant begins to grow. And the very best part, 
is that the Messiah did not come just to announce good news, just to bring good news, but he came to be good news, to be the deliverance for us. He is the Messiah, the one who by his own blood has made us sons and daughters of God, who no matter how far we run or how much we falter is there abiding with us. The Messiah who is the vine, the door, the peace, the light, the way, the breath of life that gives you strength. Jesus, the Messiah, is your King, your Lord, your Deliverer, your God. I mean, look at this last line, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the Old Testament, the concept of the year of Jubilee, seven weeks of seven years, after 49 years, in the 50th year, if you were a slave because you had to sell off your debt, you were made free. Debt canceled, land given back to you, you could return to your family. And a kinsman, a relative, could redeem you so that all things could be new. And with his death and with his resurrection, the year of the Lord's favor does not stop. For your kinsman, your brother, your Jesus has freed you and all can be given new life and the promise of eternity. That is what he has come to do. Verse 20 says, Then he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Eyes of everyone in the synagogue fastened on him. Begins by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Close your eyes and you can see it, can't you? Slowly rolls up the scroll, sits down. Everyone watches, scoots up in their seats to hear. And with those words, he answers two very important questions. Who is this Messiah that Isaiah wrote about? And Jesus says, this Messiah is me. I will bring and be these things. When will this come to pass? Jesus says, now. So here again, that in Jesus Christ, there is good news for the poor that we who are of the brokenhearted will be healed, that we who have been prisoners to sin are freed, that we who have been blind now see, that we who have been oppressed are now delivered, for the favor of our Lord Jesus is upon us. I love how amazed they were. And then what comes next? Isn't this Joseph's son? After being amazed, they begin to resent him because he was familiar. Who could speak such grace and claim to be the fulfillment of such prophecies? I wonder how it would be said today by someone who doesn't believe of what Jesus has done. Would they say something like, isn't this just wishful thinking? Isn't this just a made-up fairy tale so that you can get through your day? What difference does some thing or some words that some guy said so long ago make to me right here? I wonder what those of us who believe might say. Have we become too familiar? 
with the grace, with the promise. I pray we have none. I pray that today we will take what we have heard, what we know, and we will look at things, these gifts from God like prayer and baptism and confession with absolution and not see them as routine things that are just what we do, but as the life-giving things from Jesus Christ that they are. And I'll close with this. You know, Christ stopped that reading in Isaiah right at that second verse, right in the middle of it. But if you would have kept going, the prophecy speaks to what John the Apostle saw in Revelation and to what each one of us will experience and see with our own eyes. The prophecy concludes with, and the day of vengeance of our God will come to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of prayers instead of a, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. We live in the now. And we have much work to do as we rejoice in the life that our Lord Jesus has given to us. But what awaits us on account not of what we do, but of what He has done is the crown of eternal life given to each of us who will die in the faith. The promise that our mourning will be connected to Alleluia, Alleluia without end. Praise forever given to God because death will not be the end for us not for those who have been clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness and have been planted in the garden that the Lord Himself tends. That the Lord Himself leads and resides in. That, friends, is what is to come in the now and in the not yet.